Hello and welcome everybody to the June 2020 edition of the M&A Monthly Podcast hosted by myself, Lewis Williams. This podcast is a monthly broadcast which covers three or four current M&A deals in addition to a past deal which we look to take lessons from. My aim is to keep this podcast as interesting and concise as possible to ensure that we can keep you effectively up to date with some of the most exciting movements in the global M&A market. I'm looking to develop my understanding and knowledge of mergers and acquisitions as a topic with the hope that as the episodes continue, the quality of my analysis will improve also. I want to make the language easy to follow and with the necessary educational information to help you better understand how businesses grow and function with M&A. In conjunction with the release of my first episode, I've also made a super comprehensive set of notes for you guys on M&A and it's looking to take the similar approach as myself as a strategic advisor or investment banker. So not necessarily looking at the legal side of the deals, although it is covered, um, but more focusing on the strategic standpoint and from a financial advisor standpoint. These notes are available in the link below if you're listening on YouTube or alternatively, if you're listening through Spotify or podcasts, uh, then the link can be found on my LinkedIn page and the post is for the June episode Uh, and again my name is Lewis Williams. I advise that if you have no prior understanding of the topic um, then you should have a read through this handbook it will enable you to get a little bit more out of the podcast and fully understand as to what I'm saying. Although it is only me hosting this first episode, I endeavoured to have my former classmate and now Oxford University student Susanna Ames joining me as a co-host from July uh, onwards. Um, Okay, uh, so with all the necessary introductions out of the way, let's have a look at our first deal of the month. Our first deal that we wish to discuss and take precedence in part one is the proposed Cineworld and Cineplex takeover. Firstly, let's begin with the history of the acquirer, Cineworld. Cineworld was founded by Steve Viner in 1995 when it opened its first theatre in Stevenage, Hertfordshire. The company grew organically until 2004 when it was acquired by Blackstone Private Equity Group for £120 million. In 2007, the company was listed on the London Stock Exchange and since then has acquired numerous foreign entertainment chains as part of an aggressive inorganic growth strategy. This has led the company to become the second largest cinema chain in the world with sites over 11 different countries. To our US listeners and consumers, the primary brand for Cineworld in the States is Regal Cinemas, which was acquired by Cineworld for $3.6 billion in December 2017, which has over 500 sites in North America. Now moving over to the target side, we have Cineplex. Cineplex derives from a long history of cinema chains, including the well-known brand Odeon. The company has been through multiple M&A deals to date, which has in turn enabled it to become Canada's largest movie theatre company, whilst also being the largest in the fifth largest in the States. Uh, interestingly, one thing to note is that Cineworld's largest competitor, AMC Cinemas, who we will divulge more information on later, uh, owned the largest, uh, who do own the largest share of the US theatre market, actually divested out of Canada in 2012, selling four of its locations to Cineplex and the rest to Empire Theatres. Okay, so let's start with the theory-based analysis when it comes to this acquisition. It's clear to see that Cineworld is trying to increase its presence in Canada and the States. This would be effective through acquiring one of the largest companies operating within that geographical region, Cineplex. Enabling Cineworld to increase its market size and reach substantially over their main competitor, AMC, within that region. So much so that in addition to the already 564 location Regal Cinema chain, this acquisition of another 126 uh, sites would make Cineworld the largest uh, chain in North America. 
from the perspective of market competitiveness through gaining uh, strongholds in certain states in America or perhaps cities or provinces in Canada, Cineworld could use their majority monopoly or uh, duopoly position in certain in certain areas to their advantage, increasing ticket and food prices, further improving their profit margins. Uh, before you say, it, obviously, the likelihood of gaining um, such uh, majority positions in certain states would have to be at the approval of a third party, um, but this is something again that we could explore later on. The major strategic driver behind this is Cineworld's marketing ploy, um, the subscription service scheme called the Unlimited Card, which was initially introduced in the UK uh, and was actually a great success. Uh, The scheme um, was also introduced to Regal Chains in the US in July and has a positive reaction. Uh, The CEO said they have believes it to be a long-term game for the company. the potential to expand upon this um, seems tremendous if the two companies to align um, with the card being usable for all Regal and Cineplex cinemas users, um, it would give the advantage of great flexibility, being able to dip in, in and out of cinemas. Um, if you were on a road trip somewhere, you could go to a different cinema and it, all, it would all come off the same card, um, offering you know great flexibility in this sense. Um, and also you could actually see this um, this subscription scheme is a way for cinemas to compete with the likes of Netflix and Amazon streaming services moving forwards. Um, these uh, viewing platforms are obviously more suited to the way that the on-demand generation will be looking to consume entertainment moving forwards. Just to highlight this, Netflix made almost double the revenue of the entire North American box office in 2019 according to Statista. Moving over to cost-based synergies, Cineworld have stated that they plan to integrate Cineplex and Regal's operations, unsurprisingly, as well as achieving other cost, uh, synergistic cost efficiencies, which are predicted to be worth $120 million by the end of the fiscal year. This figure was obviously given prior to the coronavirus outbreak. However, if we were to take it as a raw figure, um, it is still only a minor saving, worth 4% of cost of sales based on 2019 Cineworld accounts. Compare this to Cineplex's existing debt of $625 million as of June 2019 and the substantial overheads which Cineworld would absolve as part of the new entity, uh, including 126 new sites under management. One would be well within their right, therefore, to question whether this deal makes sense from a cost perspective. Although Cineworld is potentially willing to undertake this risk due to the competitive advantage the acquisition offers, whilst their main competitor AMC is at their weakest, the world's largest cinema chain posts a loss of $2.4 billion from its first quarter in 2020, which is obviously when cinemas were still operational. There is significant doubt as to whether the company can continue further and it seems ever more likely they'll be forced to file for for bankruptcy. The company already has a significant debt of $5 billion. Would Cineworld, who have claimed to be able to survive until December without doubt, be better off potentially waiting for the seemingly imminent downfall of AMC and look to purchase empty premises upon solvency? Given that the price of these premises would be vastly discounted compared to the 42% premium Cineworld would be looking to pay for Cineplex shares. Whilst on the topic of share price, coming from a different perspective, Cineplex's share price as of early June was actually at its lowest since October 2018, offering Cineworld possibly the best time to acquire the company. One might also question the possibility of a government bailout for AMC if and when solvency looms. The US government has provisioned $3 trillion to, and I quote, save the economy and Americans from the coronavirus recession. Isn't that brilliant? Already, airlines and coal-industry companies have been benefiting from bailouts in the figure of billions. 
Um, these are key industries, however, which contribute many more billions to the US economy than the cinema industry, which could well be seen as a non-essential industry, although I might love it, and also a lagging industry to many, with the growth of Netflix and Amazon Prime more suited to the way that, um, again, the on-demand generation will be looking to consume entertainment moving forwards. This links nicely when looking at the growth and decline of the cinema industry comparative to the performance of our bar and seller. All numbers will be given in either dollars or percentage as a side note, and we'll be focusing only on the UK and North American market, as they contribute the most to total revenue figures and have the largest strategic impact on this acquisition. Firstly, the UK box office industry has been a changing landscape for the past two years. In 2018, box office revenues were just above level with 2017, but admissions were up 3.7%, indicating that average ticket prices had an equivalent fall. This could be seen as an impact of the subscription models and discounting methods, uh, such as the unlimited card. This continued into 2019, with emissions falling by half percent, however, and ticket prices also falling. Although this is not a healthy trend by any means, subscription schemes growing in popularity could prove effective in the long term, creating a direct rival to streaming platforms and other leisure-based activities. Comparing these industry averages to Cineworld's, Cineworld's UK and Ireland admissions fell by 6% from 2018 to 2019, which is significantly higher than the overall uh, industry average of 0.5%. Perhaps this is an implication on the market positioning of Cineworld as a slightly more expensive cinema brand. Their ticket price remained pretty much the same. Overall, this led to a fall of box office revenues for Cineworld in the region of $48 million. In the North American box office industry, admissions fell by 4.6%, revenues declined 3.6% in 2018-2019, this actually being the biggest year-on-year decline since 2013. In very much contrast to this, Cineworld actually prospered in the US, admissions grew 3.9%, and box office revenues grew 5.5% to $1.8 billion. Average ticket prices also grew 1.6% under the expansion and popularity of premium offerings. Uh, This might be compared to the cinema deluxe offering we have over in the UK, which I personally find could be the future of cinemas. It offers a USP compared to watching a film at home. Uh, The company also launched the Unlimited program in the US uh, in 2019, July 2019 that being, um, which has been well received and the impact of this can only be seen in years to come. So um, more, more of that to come. Over to the uh, seller side, Cineplex, who operate exclusively in North America, box office revenues fell by 2.5%, which is more in tune with the overall box office performance in North America from 2018 to 2019. Emissions fell by 4.2%, but ticket prices rose by 1.6%, again, the premium offerings. Cineplex's overall revenue figures grew by 3.3% from 2018 to 2019, which one would assume would be derived from the increasing ticket prices, as well as the successful promotions such as Tangerine Tuesday, um, which seems like quite a funny idea, but, you know, clearly successful. Since year-end 2019, as we all know, 2020 has been an extremely difficult time for entertainment franchises and all cinemas with the forced closures of sites in the UK and North America since mid-March time. While Cineworld have enough credit to sustain uh, sustain operations until, uh, if they were to have a full closure until 2021, they boast. Um, Cineplex, who are a much smaller operation, will not benefit from the economies of financing uh, and have suffered an ever-increasing debt obligation. This actually forced 
Cineworld to place a pre-clause on the uh, potential acquisition, um, which would state that if Cineplex's debt exceeded $725 million, um, then this would jeopardise the deal and force the deal to be abandoned. As aforementioned briefly there, Cineworld have managed two recent successes, the first being that they've secured $180 million of liquidity from bank loans and government uh, aid, which they've boasted would enable the company to survive until shutdown of next year. Secondly, they're also able to agree uh, with their landers a waiver on existing credit um, with the coronavirus outbreak, uh, whilst now increasing their leverage covenant, which is, uh, to those who don't know how much debt a company has compared to its equity, uh, by nine times a bit the earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation and amortisation. They plan to fund the acquisition through uh, $1.65 billion up front and the rest is debt borings, um, although this $1.65 is also um, credit. Uh, this obviously presents an element of risk, especially given the current climate with coronavirus. Uh, importantly, cinemas in England have been uh, the go-ahead to reopen on the 4th of July. I actually had a, an email from Cineworld themselves the other day, um, but at a reduced capacity. Uh, it is to be expected that consumers are unlikely, going to be unlikely to be enticed by the offering of going to the cinema due to the social gathering uh, where the disease may spread, also reducing ticket sales of and, and sales of uh, things such as popcorn and other elements of, of retail which contribute to the revenue schedule. In an article put out by the Financial Times, they expect that capacity to be halved and cost to rise by one-fifth under the social distancing measures. Uh, one might then question the timing of this deal due to the implications of reduced revenues over the next three to six months. Because of the uncertainty with the opening of cinemas and the likelihood of falling revenues, many shareholders were actually initially confused and upset by Cineworld's decision to take undertake such a large acquisition. Financially, both companies found themselves in a tricky position due to the lack of growth in the box office industry. Overall, Cineworld's group profits after tax fell 36%, leading to diluted earnings per share at almost half what they had been a year previous. Cineworld's network and capital and debt-to-equity ratio suffered when the company completed the leverage buyout of Regal Cinemas in 2017. The effect of this can be seen in 2018 to 2019 figures, when the networking capital increased from an already negative 530 million to just over a billion. Equally, the debt to equity ratio doubled from 1.8 to 3.2, which is really rather bad. Investors will be wary, however, due to the position of AMC as a predication for Cineworld if they do continue to borrow moving forwards, which they would have to do in order to complete the Cineplex acquisition. Cineplex's profits fell 62.5% from 2018 to 2019, which is comparatively worse than Cineworld's. Uh, Dilated earnings per share fell in line with this figure also. Networking capital was negative uh, in 2018, it was minus 189,000, um, but this increased not by double, but to 333,000. Uh, similarly, the debt to equity ratio it worsened from 1.7 to 3.6. Um, according to CEO Ellis Jacob, this was due to transaction costs related to the Cineworld acquisition. Regardless of this, however, 2018 figures showed a company which was, although growing in revenue, still found itself in a position of negative equity and highly leveraged operations. 
as a general overview, uh, with the positioning worsening to a great extent come year-end 2020 due to the coronavirus, one might actually worry uh, for the future of the cinema industry, considering the unlikelihood of cinema brands being able to achieve operational efficiency in years to come, as shown with the debt position of long-time market leader AMC, which could be seen as a comparable entity if Cineworld and Cineplex were to combine. Okay, so now we can fast forward to June 12th, where Cineworld have officially announced that they've called off the proposed merger due to an adverse material effect. An adverse material effect is a change in circumstances that reduces the value of a company. In this case, Cineplex have breached their debt threshold by going over the $725 million initially quoted in the pre-clause agreement by Cineworld. Uh, this debt undertaking is obviously due to the uh, company having to undertake borrowings to sustain operations while cinemas are closed. Um, since uh, that announcement, Cineplex are now looking to take prompt legal action, uh, and as they claim that Cineworld have actually abandoned the deal. Cineplex's market valuation has fallen by $736 million because of the announcement and have incurred significant administrative fees um, since last December when the deal was initially announced. Um, this has been a common theme of proposed uh, M&A deals in the current climate, with the hemisphere of future projections changing dramatically uh, for many companies which have been forced uh, to close or postpone deals for the foreseeable future. Um, although this deal has uh, now fallen through, unfortunately, I believe it to be an extremely interesting case, um, case study when examining the cinema industry moving forwards. There seems to be a very clear indication that subscription-based platforms are a superior a business model uh, compared to the current ticket-based administration um, operation of cinemas. The CEO of Cineworld's approach seems correct, though, um, through trying to increase his economies of scale um, and deploying his own subscription-based system to directly compete with the likes of Netflix and Prime. However, I do also worry um, whether operational efficiency will ever be achieved with the negative acceleration of the debt-to-equity figure increasing year-on-year year, uh, and, in the case of AMC, to an unsustainable and non-recoverable position. second deal we'll be looking to cover in part one is Bain Capital's $1 billion aggressive investment to take a dominant position in Japan's nursing home, childcare and dog grooming market. Bain Capital is an American private investment firm based in Boston, Massachusetts. The firm is not a subsidiary of Bain & Co Consulting, one of the top three management consulting companies. However, it was founded by two former Bain & Co employees in 1984, Mitt Romney, who's now a politician, again somebody who you may have heard of, and Bill Bain. The firm specialises in private equity, venture capital, credit, public equity, amongst other areas, and has over $105 billion in assets under management. They rank 13th in the Private Equity Index 300, which makes them one of the most influential firms within the sector. The private equity firm raised its Asia-based fund in December 2019 and has since attempted and completed a number of acquisitions and investments in Japan, including the recent acquisition of Showa Aircraft Industry that buys the Boston-based private equity group a specialised materials business, a Harley-Davidson Harley -Davidson motorcycle showroom and more than a million square metres of Western Tokyo, all for the price of $841 million. Moving over to the target side, Nichigokan is a publicly listed medical services company in Japan. They offer medical and healthcare education and other health-related services for the government. Growing annual turnover ranging between $2.1 to $2.4 billion adjusted for the past five years. 
For context and everybody's understanding, in Japan, healthcare is largely free, with the government taking 70% of the initial cost-bearing for any Japanese citizen's medical treatment. The remaining balance is regulated under a national health insurance program, which means that depending on the family's income and age, they are responsible for paying 10, 20 or 30% of the fee. Low-income households also receive a government subsidy to ensure that there's relative equality of access for all. Services are provided through either regional or national public hospitals or through private hospitals and clinics, just like here in the UK. Interestingly, Japanese people visit the hospital four times as often as the average American. This is mainly due to the fact that Japan has one of the it actually has the highest proportion of elderly citizens of any country in the world and is experiencing super aging. Clearly making the care home industry of interest for foreign investors such as Bain. The super-aging effect is a result of the Eugenic Protection Law of 1948, which allowed involuntary sterilisation of babies with intellectual disabilities. This rather unethical law was only overturned in 1996, shocking, which in addition to a prolonged period of low fertility has meant that Japan's population has been on the decline since 2011. It's predicted that the population will have shrunk 24% by 2040, which means that in theory, that the demand for healthcare and care homes will only increase linear to the ageing population. Going back slightly, importantly in 2016, the Japanese government announced it was teaming up with domestic healthcare companies to capitalise on an ever-increasing demand for healthcare in China, who face a similar issue. The Japanese Ministry of Economy awarded contracts to a number of companies to carry out healthcare technology and service facilitation projects in China. This included the target in question, Nichi Kakan, amongst others. The initial high investment in the healthcare and babysitting business in China was met with high sales, which NGF further capitalised upon through building partnerships with Chinese medical companies, such as Paramount Bed and Kawamura Cycle. This enabled them to expand upon their customer base in China and diversify their product offering, their key competency being nursing um, training. The Daiwa Institute of Research predicts that Chinese healthcare market will reach a valuation of 15.6 trillion by 2050. Whilst this deal evidently has positive growth analytical data to support it, the deal has been met with significant opposition uh, from a hedge fund called Lim Advisors. This is actually where I want to focus uh, our attention as it really is a great great case study in terms of um, the ethical approach which companies could be taking or should be uh, seen to be taking when completing such an aggressive investment. Lim Advisors is one of uh, Hong Kong's oldest hedge funds and has over $1 billion in assets. The firm was directly involved in the Corporate Governance Code, which was an attempt by the Japanese government to further protect corporate shareholders who have been suffering as of late due to the increasing activity in the middle market from uh, investment firms such as Bain, um, who have been taking over um, large proportions of shares or, or actually acquiring full shares of domestic companies. And this being a prime example, uh, Bain's $1 billion acquisition took control of 44% of Nietzsche initially. Um, this 44% was held by surviving relatives and an asset management group of the company's founder who passed only a year ago. Bain offered the remaining shareholders 1,500 yen per share or a 39% premium over their average price for the month. However, this is still significantly lower than the conservative estimation Lim projected of 2,400 yen per share. The timing of the deal meant that Bain could take advantage of a low share price. The share price in mid-March, when the uh, Japanese government announced it was going into a state of emergency due to the coronavirus, meant that Nichigokan shares were half their value of late October. 
showing it to be a great buy for Bain because the share price has now almost returned to its October price. Obviously, the acquisition uh, news will have also um, raised that valuation. Because of this and reports of conflict of interest within the uh, board of directors at Nichiga Kan, Lim believes that the deal breaches the new M&A guidelines um, put out only a year ago by the METI, the Ministry of Economy, Trade and Services. Um, these are slightly different to the Corporate's Governance Code, which was uh, set out in 2016, however, follow a very similar message. They are put out due to the ever-growing uh, presence of global private equity funds and other foreign investors in the domestic Japanese M&A market. They aim to replicate the best practices of the UK, US, German and French law systems. At the centre of the guidelines is the introduction of special committees, which have the power to regulate the entire M&A transaction process uh, once the buyer has submitted their letter of intent with uh, deal terms attached. The special committees are made up of members of the METI, as well as external advisors. Guidelines focus on fairness in valuation and also the treatment of shareholders. Although guidelines do not hold the same weight as law and regulation, the committees have enough power to charge damages to the board of directors and even break up deals where the parties involved have broken guidelines. So where does the special committee fall on Bain's acquisition, which based on Lim's allegations would seem unlawful and against the new core message of the new guidelines uh, set out only a year ago, as aforementioned? Does this deal signify a lack of progress in Japan to move away from their reputation as a global pariah for its minority shareholders, still favouring MBOs over ethical business practices? From my own perspective, it seems there are elements of foul play as the Bain executives has sat on the Nichikokan board for the past five years, um, presenting a clear conflict of interest. However, in Bain's defence, uh, they've more than complied with the Japanese law and regulation through providing an additional 11 days after finishing the 20-day grace period, which companies had to counterbid the initial offer Bain put in. Equally, the Bain executive who had sat on the board recused themselves from negotiations. However, it is claimed by Lim that now the company could have put in a counteroffer due to social distancing regulations and that the, conf- uh, the conflict of interest was still very much in play as four of the board and negotiation team members were loyal to Bain. It seems that no special committee will act to disrupt this deal because of this, um, and despite there still being a very you know clear risk of conflict of interest. Irrespective of the unethical nature of the deal, it seems that Bain has made another exceptionally smart acquisition in the East and to add to their ever-growing portfolio. And it'll be interesting to see how uh, Nichika Kang grows under Bain's new capital and managerial input. This June 2020 edition of the MA Monthly Podcast, hosted by myself, Lewis Williams. I acknowledge it's quite intense listening, so it may be best just to have a quick break um, and just get some food, or if you're on a walk, and listen to some music or reply to some loved ones. In the second part, we'll be focusing on two of um, two great deals. The first being one of the biggest mergers um, proposed in recent years between Persia and Fiat Chrysler. And also we'll be looking at a past deal, um, Apple's $3 billion investment in Beats Electronics which is a personal favourite of mine uh, just from a case study perspective and looking at valuations so join back for part two and I hope to speak to you guys then cheers (laughs) 